Today's scripture reading can be found um, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and it may be found in your Blue Pew Bibles um, on page 954. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought not you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already proclaimed, pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the word of God. James, thank you. Uh, I should have made it clear. We're going to look at this whole chapter. Uh, so I'll encourage you to open it up in the Bibles uh, that are before you. Um, it is on page 954 of those Blue Pew Bibles, and it's uh, chapter 5, page 954, chapter 5. Before we get there, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you for this day. Father, um, it is with just such great joy um, that we celebrate together the birth of Leighton James Barnes. And Father, we are so thankful that you've given um, a child of this church a child of his own. Father, we are amazed um, by your faithfulness, by your goodness to your body, um, by the way in which you continue to speak hope into a beautiful and a broken world um, by continuing to allow us, your image bearers, um, children. And Father, we pray that as this young boy belongs not just to his mom and dad, but to the church, um, that you would impress upon all of our hearts how we ought to pray for him. Um, Father, we pray that you would be with Ben and Lauren. We pray that you would strengthen them to the task that you have called them to. Father, we ask that you would be merciful to them and that you would be gracious to them, that they would know that you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, we praise you that you have defined yourself by one who is so quick to forgive. And Father, for the first time in his life, we pray before you, would this young boy never know a day where he does not know your love for him even before the first 24 hours of his life are over, Father, we ask that you would work faith in his heart and we praise you for how gracious you are. Father, we can't help but as we pray for Ben and Lauren to remember Nathan and Rachel, even as they're with us now and as their due date is tomorrow or the next day, we ask that you would be merciful to them, that you would bring this little one of theirs into this world. Father, we pray that you would be merciful to Rachel, that you would strengthen her and strengthen her body as you have called her uh, to this task of bearing this young boy. And Father, we ask that you would be merciful. 
Father, this plea of mercy um, is before us today as we recognize who we are as those who are created in your image and yet those who come from parents who believed that they knew best. Father, we know that the arrogance and pride that is in our hearts is both ours because we are arrogant and prideful, but is also what we have inherited from our father and our mother, Adam and Eve. We praise you um, that you are a God who knows us already, um, that you saved us uh, when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. And so, Father, I pray that as the Bible gives us such great hope, you would speak to the hearts of the, the young women and the young men who are here today, um, the, the men and the women who are here today, the, the grandmothers and the grandfathers who are here today, and that you would remind us what is true of us, not because we feel it, not because we think it's true, but because your word says it. Father, you have said that your word um, is the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes men fall. You have said that your word became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ and that in Christ you made yourself known to us. Father, I pray that those who are here today and who are discouraged would know that you are a God who is sovereign, that you are a God who is exactly as you made yourself out to be, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Father, for those of us who are here today who struggle with pride, would we believe that you already know what is true about us? And would you uncover for us in your kindness the depth of our pride that you might lead us to repentance? And Father, for those who are here today who have yet to come to grips with the pride that is in the human heart, would you in your kindness pull the curtain of our hearts back from us that in your kindness we would deal with sin? Father, we all stand before you as those who deserve your displeasure even as we ask Clara and as we asked Elena, and as we asked Nathaniel. We deserve your displeasure, and yet that's not what you gave us. Rather, you gave us your mercy and your graciousness. And Father, I'm asking now that your mercy and your graciousness, the fact that you're slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love, would break our hearts, whether we are the youngest or the oldest in this congregation, that our hearts would soften, that we would drop our heads and worship You, and that we would seek to proclaim this promise in Christ that You are going to make us what we already are. Father, we ask that You would show us where our lives need to be more aligned with Your intention for humanity and that we, with joy and celebration, would be quick to obey. Father, I want to thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Father, I know that there are folks who are here who are discouraged today, and I pray that in their discouragement, you would meet them and you would show them how faithful you are to them, to a woman and to a man created in your image. Father, remind them 
that a bruised reed you will not break and that a smoldering wick you will not snuff out. And Lord Jesus, that you took that characteristic on yourself when you became gentle and lowly. Lord Jesus, help us to see you. Send your spirit as Aaron has already prayed in the invocation. Help us to see you, and by seeing you, help us to change. We thank you and we praise you, and it's in Christ your name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, we're looking at this fifth chapter of Corinthians, and when I told my dad, who is now a great-grandfather, and I called him and told him that I had to preach today, he goes, well, go to that proverb and preach about what a gift grandchildren are to you. And I thought to myself, maybe that's what I ought to do, especially as I looked at 1 Corinthians 5 and thought, have mercy. Really? I've got to focus on this this week? So for those of you all who have prayed for me, you have prayed that I would be able to bring you God's Word. Uh, to you today. And so we're going to look at this chapter of 1 Corinthians 5, but I want to remind you where we are in this letter of Paul's to the Corinthians. You know, Paul planted the church of Corinth. Remember last week at the end of chapter 4, he said, look, you don't all have multiple fathers. You only have one. And by God's graciousness and sovereignty to you, I'm your spiritual father, the apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth. And he said, look, I, I plead with you don't cast me aside in your arrogance and in your pride. You know, this morning as I was finishing up this sermon, I got a text that my flight for me to get to go see my grandchild was canceled. And I thought, me? Of all the people in the world, you're going to cancel their flight? You're going to do that to me? <laughs> and right there, I began to think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who got their flights canceled today. The thousands and thousands of thousands of people who are just like me. The millions and millions who are just like me. But this picture of arrogance of my own heart just reared its ugly head. So much so that I was sending off texts that I'm ashamed to tell you I was sending off to this certain airline. I've tried to figure out how do you repent for that kind of thing. Maybe I just come clean to you. I, maybe there is an actual customer service email that I can send. But the church in Corinth is a church who has allowed its arrogance to get the better of them. We have been told that that arrogance is called boasting and also being puffed up. The Apostle Paul has used those two words along with the word of arrogance, and he has called them away from that. What does the Apostle Paul mean by arrogance? The Apostle Paul simply means this, that we as women and men who descend from our first federal head, the one who represented us by God's grace, Adam and Eve, that we, we are broken and arrogant. That we have said we know what is best. That we function in our lives by saying, I know what's best and I'm going to do what's best. The Apostle Paul has challenged the Corinthians, and you saw it last week as he really laid into them. Remember, he used this irony of chapter 4, and he goes, oh yeah, according to your vision, this is who you are and this is who we are. Remember, he was ironic in that, and he pled for them, please don't go any further than what the text has written. Boast only in the Lord, and boast in this in the Lord, that you know Him and that you understand Him. Look, all of Scripture 
is written, not so that you would live a godly life. That is a side benefit for all of Scripture. All of Scripture was written so that you would know God and understand Him so that we would worship. As we interviewed with Clara earlier today, we encouraged Clara during times in the worship service to drop her head and to worship, to pray. And again, I want to encourage you in the same way. The reason God gave us any of His Scripture is so that we would know Him and understand Him, not so that we would justify our own lives, thinking that we know what's best. And you see, that's where these Corinthians are. There's a primary problem in this text and there is a secondary problem in this text. It's kind of fascinating. And what you think is the primary problem is actually the secondary problem, according to the Apostle Paul. And what you think might be secondary or less of a problem, the Apostle Paul actually says that's the real problem here. And so he's building on what he laid, the groundwork in chapter 4, pleading with them, the Corinthians, not to continue in their arrogance. Now listen, the reason that Nathan and I chose to pick 1 Corinthians to preach through this year is because of a lot of the suffering that we're going through. We are not here to tell you we think that you are particularly arrogant. Now again, I want the Holy Spirit to work His way. Would He reveal to you and to me the depth of our arrogance? But I want us to see what the Apostle Paul is pointing out here, that there's a primary problem and a secondary problem. I want you to see first the secondary problem. So turn to page 954 with me and let's look at it. The Apostle Paul has just talked to them about their arrogance and their pride and the fact that they are puffed up and that he's going to come to them and he's going to find out are they going to repent or not. And then he says this in chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is, a, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And then don't miss verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. The situation that the Apostle Paul is using to bring to their minds and to their consciousness This primary problem is the secondary problem that's going on in the Corinthian church in that sexual immorality. This is the word porneia that you know that we get our word pornography from. And the New Testament uses this word for every expression of extramarital sexual sin and aberration. Every expression of extramarital sin and sexual aberration. That's the definition of what this means, sexual immorality. And specifically, the form of sexual immorality that's here is what we would know of as incest. A man who is having his father's wife. That simply means in our vernacular, a man who is currently sleeping with his father's wife, right? This is ongoing. It's present tense. And the Apostle Paul says, in this situation, you are arrogant. Again, what does arrogance mean? Arrogance means simply this. We know what is best. We know how to live our lives the best. That's what it means to be arrogant. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't communicate to us, are they arrogant because this man is doing this? In other words, do they know that he's sleeping with his father's wife? 
And their arrogance is such that maybe they think we are so spiritual that the regular relationships that bind us don't bind us anymore. And even our sexual relationships, we're free to do whatever we want. There's going to be some language that comes out in chapter 7 that might lead you to believe that that's what they were arrogant about. Or maybe it's just the fact that they're arrogant and they're not even addressing the sin that's in front of them. But this idea of arrogance, the Apostle Paul makes clear this, that it morphs our ability to respond correctly to sin. You read in the very next verse, he goes, you're arrogant and ought you not rather to mourn? And then he goes on to tell them the solution of this secondary problem among them. He says that you must remove him from among you. In verses 3 through 6, or 3, 4, and 5, rather, he explains how this is going to happen, right? Look at verses 3, five, three 4, and 5. He says this, for, through, for though absent in body, I am present in, and you ought to be able to read the Spirit, but it says Spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did this thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's the process that the Apostle Paul says? We're going to address this situation, this secondary problem. The Apostle Paul first emphasizes that because of his connection with them with the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that's dwelling among them is dwelling with him. He made clear that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. He said, look, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and his authority in the name of Jesus, when you gather together, I'm with you, and in my apostolic authority that had been given to Paul and to the disciples uniquely, He's rightly judged that this one who is committing this this sexual immorality of incest is to be expelled from their communion. This is a corporate response. When the church and Paul come together by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are to take action. And he says, deliver this one over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? Well, the church is supposed to be the realm of the kingdom of God the place where Jesus Christ is recognized as Savior and King and that He reigns. And we're told very clearly that in the world that Satan reigns. And so what he is saying is he's saying, turn this one out of the church. And he's very clear about why, right? There's one reason he says, so that his flesh might be consumed or destroyed, this this desire that he would have to be having sex with his father's wife would be destroyed in him. He would taste and experience the weight and the magnitude of his sin. But listen to the kindness and compassion that Paul gives at the end of that sentence. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is an amazing thing. The, The apostle Paul actually says that the purpose for this act of judgment in the church is to the end that this individual would repent and that his soul would be eternally saved. Now, before we get to the primary problem, I just have one question to ask you. 
Do we have a category in our minds, in our lives, in our thoughts for compassionate judgment? Do we have that category in our minds and in our lives? This judgment that the Apostle Paul calls for, he calls for a judgment that first mourns and that second moves toward a sinner in such a way that that sinner would receive repentance. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul will tell us that it's God's kindness, His kindness towards us that leads us to repentance. And that's the desire that the Apostle Paul says here. But I want you to see the weight in the context of this situation, which wouldn't even have been allowed among pagans, those who would be outside the church, those who would not profess faith in Jesus Christ, they would even recognize that this is an immoral situation. The Apostle Paul has something more to say. And in that sense, I'm excited to get to read it to you. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Because the Apostle Paul is going to focus on the primary problem. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is the Apostle Paul doing? The Apostle Paul doesn't say incest is not good. The Apostle Paul believes that we ought to know as image bearers of God that incest is not good. He says even the pagans don't tolerate that. But the Apostle Paul in verse 6 puts before the Corinthians again their boasting, their arrogance, the fact that they are puffed up, the fact that they say, we know what is best for us. We are not interested in what you, Paul, have to say, nor are we interested in what God has to say. This boasting, as we've seen in chapters 1 through 4, has led to division. And here we see that it's blinding the Corinthians to the impact of the sin that's in their lives. And it's affecting their understanding of Paul's instruction to flee sexual immorality, to not associate with those who practice sexual immorality, right? He starts off by emphasizing this primary importance by saying, let me explain the impact of it. And he uses a proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Look, there are a lot of commentators who have said that what the Apostle Paul is going after is incest. And he's saying, look, remove this leaven of incest that is among you because it's going to leaven the whole lump. Cleanse it from you. Get it out from you. That may be the case, but it seems more likely to me that he is talking here about their arrogance. There is a way in which we as a church might say, man, we could never imagine incest being tolerated among us. Let me ask you, can you imagine pride being tolerated among us? 
Because if one sin is like leaven that leavens the whole loaf, what keeps any other sin from leavening the entire loaf? Listen, the Apostle Paul makes it clear, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. What does this come from? This is Passover language, right? You remember when the Israelites were leaving Egypt? They were told to prepare a Passover meal, and they were told to prepare meal with unleavened bread because there wasn't enough time for leaven to cause bread to rise. Children, trust me, none of us really understand this unless your moms and dads make homemade bread. But imagine this sourdough starter is what he's talking about here. This starter that you add to sourdough that already is leavened, it's already soured. And it causes the whole loaf of bread to expand and to be airy so that when you bake it, it's a big, puffy loaf of bread. But once a year, the Jewish people who were allowed to eat leaven any other time were supposed to cleanse all leaven out from among them. And they were supposed to start over and remember who they were. They were those who would be saved by Passover, the Lamb of God shed for them. And here the Apostle Paul uses that image and he says, cleanse it from you. But what is interesting is that he actually describes the old leaven as malice and evil and unleavened bread is sincerity and truth. I believe that it's that sincerity and truth that helps us to understand what he's talking about is arrogance in the church. What's his solution? In 6, 7, and 8, the solution is to repent. Not so that they would become something, but to repent because they already were something. I had a friend who was over on the back porch this week. We had been mountain biking, and he came over, and we sat for a drink afterwards. And he goes, tell me something. In the gospel, how do you change? How does one change in the gospel? And I described to him that we change in the church by looking to Jesus and recognizing in him God's love for us that softens our hearts and leads us to repentance and that the work of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace, the preaching and the sacrament changes our hearts so that we would love in place of arrogance. That's how we change. And he goes, that's crazy. I think that's crazy. And he goes, that's where we're different. Church, I want you to hear that this is where the Apostle Paul sits on the gospel. He calls the church to repent. Now look, if you don't believe me and you think that they're supposed to repent and cleanse themselves of the sin of incest, that's fine. The theory is the same either way. We either cleanse ourselves from this, this, this sin of incest or we cleanse ourselves from this sin of arrogance. How do we do it? We do it by repenting, not to become something, but to remember who we already are. Because he says this, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened And how does he say that that's who we really are? He says it right here in verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He doesn't say, cleanse yourselves so that you become something. 
He says, cleanse yourself because you already are something. And that's the gospel, church. The reason we would care about our arrogance, if the Lord would convict us of our arrogance, is because we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are a body that is tended to be unleavened, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the new lump of sincerity and truth that you can see flies in the face of arrogance. The Apostle Paul says to repent, not to become something, but because you are something, because of what Jesus has done. If you want to know what the message of the gospel is, it is that you are saved by grace through faith. And this faith is a gift. It is not of work so that no one would boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I have another question for you. Do we have a category for corporate repentance? Do we have a category for that church? See, I think this is hard for Americans. I think it's hard because we think of ourselves so independently. But here, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the church ought to study itself to know if we, together, need to repent. And here he says, are you arrogant, proud, puffed up, saying, I know what's best. I know what's best, and I'm going to do it even if it flies in the face with what God has said. That's the first part of his solution. But the second part is to take sin seriously, and that's verse 11. We're going to end there. The third part is that the church would actually practice judgment in itself. Look at verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul has explained to them, I guess we should start in 9, I, I, I wrote to you in my previous letter, and, and, and that's what he means in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral, immoral people. He goes, not at all meaning that the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reveler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then he says this, for what have I, the Apostle Paul speaking, what have I to do with judging outsiders, with judging the world? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What is the compassionate judgment that we are called to? As a church, are we called to condemn the world? Think about that for a minute. I'm not saying are we called to speak prophetically into the world. If you read the Old Testament, you know that the prophets did that all the time. But are we supposed to condemn the world when we gather together? That is not what we are supposed to do. We are, when we gather together, supposed to judge ourselves. And we are judged by God's Word, 
not by our own ideas. Remember, the Apostle Paul has said there's no place in judgment for arrogance. Arrogance says, I know what is best. But the Apostle Paul is saying, no. Our call as a church is to judge ourselves. God is going to judge the world. Let God do that. Bring God's truth to bear on yourselves that there might always be a pattern in his church of repentance and faith, turning back to Christ, recognizing Christ. Practice judgment in the church, he says, not in the world. Listen, this judgment that we practice is for each other. Why was the incestuous man judged? You read it as easily as I did in chapter in verse 2, so that he might be saved in the end. The desire is eternal salvation in the face of this sexual immorality. But we are also to judge the church as a whole because we, church, have an ethos. Listen, ask anybody who comes and visits a church, what's the ethos of this church? Now, you may not be able to gather the accurate ethos from visiting once, but if you came and visited over a course and period of time, you would say, yeah, this church has a real ethos to it. And the question is, is that ethos gospel-driven or is it not? And if it's not, ought we not to judge ourselves as the temple of the living God, the, the place where the kingdom of God goes forward into this world, proclaiming the holiness of God? The Apostle Paul is saying, take yourselves seriously of who you are, church, the bride of Christ. Remember, the gospel is that we were dead in our sins when he made us alive. God saved us. But the Apostle Paul says, look, you got to take sin seriously. We're going to close with this. I want to just walk you through each of these things. I want to ask you, do we take sin seriously as a church? I started thinking about this on Wednesday mornings. And you know something that I was struck with this week? We don't always on Wednesday mornings have a place for corporate confession. I think that's going to change. I think on Wednesday mornings we ought to ask God, is there something as a congregation that we ought to repent of? Verse 11 the Apostle Paul in 9 and 10 is saying, look, you misunderstood me. And it's probably the arrogance of those who received the letter and they said, look, Paul said you can't deal with sexually immoral people. And they probably looked at the Corinthians and they said, that would mean you can't have anything to do with the world. But let me tell you, sexual immorality doesn't matter. What matters is spiritual truth. And we're going to see some of the things that they taught the Corinthians later on. But the Apostle Paul says, let me make myself clear. I'm telling you not to associate with a brother or a sister, in other words, one who professes faith in Jesus, who practices in an ongoing way. He starts the list with sexual immorality. Every expression of extramarital sexual sin and aberration. I want to ask us, when is the last time we spoke with one another about our own sexual sin. Ours. Our lure to pornography. Our use of sexuality against someone else. 
Listen, it's easy enough to cast stones outside the church, but the Apostle Paul says, take sexual immorality seriously among you. He then turns to greed. He picks greed because greed is interesting. You know, even in the Greco-Roman world, greed was a violation of the basic principle of proportion. It went contrary to the well-being of others in citizenry. Think about that. In all my time of counsel at Christ the King Church Newton, I've only heard once someone confess that they had a love of money that they feared was overwhelming their lives. Do we struggle with greed? Wanting more than our portion. Again, it's almost impossible for us who have grown up in the Western hemisphere to fathom this idea. Let me ask you, how much is enough? You know the answer as much as I do, right? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. What about our view of our work? Does that have anything to do with greed? Our inability to stop and to rest because we want more? Idolatry is the next one on the list. Taking something that's good and elevating it to the best. Education, work, children, opportunities, church. Do we repent of idolatry within us? He says the revelers, those who practice reviling, not a word that we use much. Reviling means to insult and to verbally abuse. It was commonplace in the Greco-Roman world. It was part of everyday life and theater and politics and society. And in fact, they believed that the way you dealt with reviling led you to whether or not you had a good life. Reviling insulting and verbal abuse. Seems like it's commonplace in our lives too. The polarization that has affected our culture and our society that has affected us as well. Let me ask you this question. When is the last time you called your opponents idiots? This seeking to damage the reputation of others inherent in gossip. So much so that one of the commentators said that when Paul says in chapter 4, verses 12, that when he was reviled, that he blessed, that that was a sure sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God to respond to reviling against by blessing others. Do we bless those who we disagree with, church? Or do we under our breath revile them? Drunkenness or being a drunkard? We all know what this leads to. It lowers our inhibitions to the other vices. Every country music song I know that's popular right now talks about the whiskey talking, right? And we used to talk to our students in college about drunkenness and the inability to love one another when you're drunk. It's just not possible. Do we cultivate a community that's responsible in the way 
in which we use good gifts. And finally, swindling or the swindler. And again, those who practice these things ongoing, violently greedy, taking from others what is their just due because you can and you want to. Church, where do we bring our business practices under the scrutiny of our faith? The Apostle Paul says in this chapter that there is a secondary important issue here, and it's sexual immorality, and he explains the situation. But he's very clear to say that the primary problem in the Corinthian church is one of arrogance. And the solution is repentance to what we already are, taking sin seriously and being willing to judge ourselves, you guys. Why would anybody be willing to judge ourselves? Because every week we take of a supper that says, though we are sinners, Christ died for us. The reason we ought to be willing to judge ourselves is because we have the gospel against which we can always plead and ask God, please, would you remove the leaven of arrogance that is deep, 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 deep in my heart? Before we come to this table, will you pray with me?